Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, Jim. Well, here we are today to discuss another uh, episode of our podcast titled Apocalypse is Coming. So it's a delight as we go forward to another passage and another question that we want to deal with today. Uh, this question that we are facing today is, who is the restrainer of the Antichrist? So in a sense, this is episode number four in our series on the Antichrist. Last time, uh, episode 10 dealt with uh, the Antichrist as Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, introduces him in the last uh, teaching that he gave before he uh, went to the cross and rose again. That last teaching is called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And we dealt with that in episode 10. Jesus had very much to say about the appearance of the Antichrist. Uh, as prophesied by Daniel in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, and even elsewhere, chapter 11 and 12. So we come today to uh, the question, who is the restrainer of the Antichrist? So many questions surround end-time events. Uh, isn't that true, John? <laughs> All kinds of questions. And uh, if you uh, are short on questions, you'll have plenty uh, when you look at the passage that we uh, will study today. Yes. So people ask, you know, when are the end times or what are the end times? And we dealt with that in uh, episode number two, I think, <clears throat> way back at the beginning. People ask, well, what is Armageddon? What is the Great Tribulation? And maybe we'll take up that issue uh, next time. Uh, when does the rapture take place? Uh, what is the millennial kingdom? What is amillennialism versus premillennialism? So many more questions. We'll never run out of questions, I think, to deal with in this podcast. And so we come today to another unique question. Uh, I say unique in the sense that only the Apostle Paul gives us teaching and instruction about uh, who the Antichrist um, is going to be restrained by. Because all of a sudden we learn in this passage that uh, the Antichrist is, uh, at least his power and his influence, the spirit of Antichrist, is ever-present in the sense of what Paul tells us in this passage of the mystery of lawlessness, but it is not fully um, uh, allowed to show forth. It is restrained, an interesting word in itself, uh, by something or someone, and we'll talk about that today. So how is the Antichrist restrained or who is the restrainer so we come to second thessalonians chapter two <clears throat> i might remind our listeners that the thessalonian epistles uh these two epistles by the apostle paul say more about the end times than any of the other of paul's writings combined <clears throat> and they are among his earliest writings so right at the very beginning as paul under inspiration of the holy spirit begins to instruct the churches that he has uh, planted <clears throat> is led to discuss <clears throat> uh, end time events because it was involved in his preaching. So when he came to Thessalonica and preached the gospel, that gospel included not only the fact that Jesus Christ is our redeemer and savior, but he's also our coming king who's going to establish a, an everlasting reign. And uh, he was accused by his detractors, his opponents, as preaching that there was another king Jesus, and that was a, that allowed <clears throat> his detractors, his opponents, <clears throat> to accuse him of being disloyal to Caesar. 
So uh, perhaps we missed that in our preaching today when we preached the gospel. Jesus is not only our Savior and Redeemer, but he is our coming King. And so Paul clarifies some questions that came forward from the Thessalonians uh, after he had left there. He had sent Timothy back to see how they were doing, and Timothy returns and, and said that they had several questions. And so this epistle is intended, especially the second epistle, to clarify uh, what is it that uh, is going to happen as end time events unfold and the day of the Lord approaches. So let's begin by reading Second uh, Thessalonians 2. And John, if you would start that reading, then we'll just stop and comment on various verses as we go along. I might remind our readers that our listeners that uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 uh, deals with the coming of Christ at the judgment time at the end of the tribulation, uh, what we would call the battle of Armageddon. And it's a powerful, powerful passage. That's chapter 1. And then Paul goes to a new topic when we come to chapter 2. So, John, if you'd begin there. Yes, I will do that, uh, and I'll be reading from the uh, ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, right. today. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I'm going to pause right there. There's plenty enough that we can uh, comment on and what's just been said. Yeah, so uh, going right back to the first verse, Paul begins by saying, I want to talk about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. So that's a broad uh, category to talk about the return of Jesus Christ coming again. Uh, that term coming is used frequently throughout the uh, Thessalonian epistles to talk about the return of Christ. Some of our listeners may be somewhat unaware of the fact that when Jesus left, just prior to the time when he again was betrayed and arrested and so forth, he gave words in the upper room discourse promising his disciples that he was going to leave them and he was not going to leave them, however, orphanless, uh, as orphans, pardon me, and, uh, but would provide a comforter, namely the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he also said that uh, their hearts should not be troubled about his absence because he is going to return. He will come again and take us, his followers, to be with him. So this is uh, the fulfillment of those uh, ideas here as Paul expresses them. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. Those last words probably refer to the rapture of the church. Our being gathered to him as he described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then in verse 2, he talks about how deeply they had become disturbed by certain false teaching. Uh, they had become alarmed. Jesus talks about that uh, same idea of uh, being alarmed. And Paul says, you've been deceived and uh, led astray. Uh, and, it, and it may be by a spoken word or a prophecy that somebody perhaps gave in the church or even a letter uh, seemingly from Paul, which would mean it was a forgery. 
And Paul says, uh, I want to set you straight about the day of the Lord. We cannot be living in the day of the Lord, which is the final consummation of the great tribulation. We can't be living in that time of the last seven years of the tribulation period because two things have not happened. And so verse three says, um, don't let anyone deceive you. The word deceit is very powerful in Paul and in Jesus' teaching and in the book of Daniel. Uh, so there's deception involved, and that would take us back to the great deceiver of all, Satan himself. But he says that that day of the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So two things have to happen before the day of the Lord is finalized. And uh, it's expressed here in my translation as the rebellion occurring and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, John, you've been looking into uh, the words, uh, the rebellion. Tell us what the options are in understanding that. Well, here's a classic case uh, where oftentimes a translator has to make at least an initial interpretation uh, of a particular Greek term. And of course, uh, that also occurs in the Old Testament as well. But here we have uh, the term uh, apostasia, and that uh, is a standard Greek term to, that means a standing away from something. Um, that's uh, in many translations, current translations is translated as rebellion. In the King James, both the Old and the New King James, it's called a falling away. And the, uh, the uh, translators of the New American Standard Bible decided, I, I guess, kind of to punt on the issue rather than interpreting it. And they just used the English transliteration and they call it apostasy. But the problem with uh, apostasy is we already have prepared in our minds uh, the general English uh, meaning of that term, which is a falling away from the truths of the scripture. So the question becomes, what does this term apostasia refer to? Well, it kind of depends on what you're standing away from. If you're standing away from the truths of the scripture, it's, uh, it's uh, akin to heresy. If you're standing away from uh, a building, it's just a departure from a building. If you're standing away from the rule of law and order, it's called rebellion. And so uh, there's, there's just uh, any number of possibilities. What do you think is the best way to take this? Well, you know, uh, I come down uh, on basically two major options. And one is the apostasy refers to the departure of the church from the truth. Uh, or secondly, the departure of the world from uh, law and order. So it'd be worldwide rebellion. And then a third view, which is very much a possibility, too, is that it refers to the departure of the church, namely the rapture. And the first verse, as I already said, refers to the rapture of the church under the words being gathered together to him. And it is in First Thessalonians 4. So, so I think that's a very strong possibility. Uh, I think this is the case, John, where, as you would agree, we cannot be dogmatic and therefore insist that it be an article of faith that every Christian should believe this to be one thing or the other. The term apostasia is so general. And what, what is remarkable about this epistle is that the Thessalonians knew more about this than we do. 
because people <laughs> say in verse six, uh, verse five, don't you know that I used to tell you about these things? Don't you remember that? <laughs> and uh, so there's information that the Thessalonians had, which they were now confused about, but they had certain information that we do not have. And so I could guess that they knew what Paul was talking about when he uses the term apostasy. It certainly fits into the context of verse three and following that worldwide rebellion or lawlessness would fit here as well, because that's who we're talking about, the Antichrist, who will lead uh, worldwide lawlessness. So talking about the second term then, so, th so that's the first sign, which is not clear to us what the rebellion might be. That has to happen before the uh, day of the Lord is fully uh, achieved. And the second sign is the man of lawlessness Lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So Paul gives two titles for this person, uh, the man of lawlessness, and secondly, the man doomed to destruction. Literally, that said the son of perdition from closer to the Greek text. And that simply means uh, the person doomed to destruction or perdition. Perdition is eternal destruction. There is a phrase in the Old Testament that talks about, uh, well, let me, let me say this first. The only person elsewhere described in the New Testament, at least, is, is uh, Judas, the person who is uh, the betrayer of Jesus, and he is described as a son of perdition. So uh, it tells us something about the nature or character of the Antichrist that uh, it could think of no greater person uh, uh, who engaged in evil than Judas in betraying the Son of God. Well, this person, the Antichrist in the future, is like a Judas, like Judas of the past. He falls into the same category of significant, great betrayal of the truth and of Jesus Christ. So this phrase is what, when I was teaching uh, this book uh, several, several months ago, actually a year and a half ago, it was this phrase that sparked uh, my inquiry into this and the following verses as well. And I came to realize that the man of lawlessness is a phrase that derives from the book of Daniel. And that's confirmed by something else Paul will tell us shortly in the following verses. The book of Daniel says that the man who is opposed to God, and there Daniel calls him uh, the little horn that's going to arise out of a future fifth kingdom. Uh, he's also called uh, other terms of, uh, of evil. And one of the phrases associated with him, according to Daniel, is that he will, be, he will seek to break, to break laws and rules and so forth. And so uh, the word mystery is tied to, uh, by Daniel to him there as well. So uh, it's clear that Paul is building upon Daniel and upon the Lord Jesus because Jesus in, the, in that Olivet Discourse uh, referred to the fact that lawlessness would prevail and come to pass under the time of the Antichrist as well. So Paul is perhaps uh, dependent upon Jesus, and Jesus is dependent upon Daniel, or uh, Paul and Jesus together are dependent upon Daniel, but it's clear there's a connection among all three. So the rest of these verses go on then to identify what he will do, and so uh, why don't you pick up again at verse four and read forward, forward a few more verses. All right, I'll begin uh, at verse five now. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, you know, Jim, I agree with you. It is, 
it is uh, we're left more in the dark than uh, than the Thessalonians uh, were. But I I reflected on that particular kind of a, a state uh, that we're in, uh, not having the familiar with familiarity with some of what Paul is saying that they did. But that is that's in the sovereignty of God. God knew when Paul wrote this scripture that we'd be reading it uh, almost 2,000 years later. And we have sufficient enough in the scripture that we can be satisfied not having all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted regarding every minor specific thing that may uh, have to do with the end times. You know, but having said that, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that's a good reminder, John. I appreciate your sharing that. Um, because that answered the question, well, why can't we know or why don't we know and so forth and so forth. There's a wonderful verse in the Old Testament that says, uh, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the things that he has revealed belong unto us and our children so that we may live in them forever. So sufficient is the revelation of scripture to call us to obedience to our God and our Lord Jesus to do uh, what he commands us and has revealed in scripture. I want to comment before you go on about verse 4. We have a characteristic of the Antichrist. So what we're saying here is that the man of lawlessness is a unique term uh, brought forward by the Apostle Paul, another one of the seven or eight titles of the Antichrist. And uh, verse 4 gives us a characteristic of him that we find described in other passages quite frequently. In the book of Daniel, uh, the book of Revelation, book of 1 John, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship, so that he sets up himself in God's temple, proclaiming that he himself is God. This is a tremendous verse that tell us the chief characteristic of the Antichrist. He will call upon worldwide adulation, as it were, becoming the idol all the people of the world should give recognition of, and he will do so in a very uh, significant way. And in the middle of this verse, Paul tells us he will set himself up in God's temple. This is one of the few passages in the New Testament and the old that tell us there will be a future temple that will be profaned by the Antichrist. Uh, Daniel says and uses the terminology, the abomination of desolation, which Jesus quotes in Matthew 24, 15 at the sign of the Antichrist. Well, this means that he desecrates uh, the temple where only the true God should be worshipped. Instead, the Antichrist will set himself up there and perhaps an image of him so that he causes this terrible abomination uh, in desolating the temple. So to the question that is often heard about in evangelical and Christian circles, uh, will the Antichrist have to desecrate a new temple in Israel? The question seems to be uh, answered by the words, yes. Uh, this is a verse that supports that. And in my study of this, I found that uh, later Christian writing uh, spoke about this. Uh, and even intertestamental literature talks about the fact that the Antichrist or a person who opposes God will desecrate another temple in the end times. So, as we think of where we are today in history, we look toward the nation of Israel, and there is no temple there. So this either means that the temple uh, will be built soon, if Jesus Christ is going to return soon, uh, 
even perhaps starting before the tribulation or after the rapture of the church and the tribulation uh, begins, then the Antichrist uh, will endeavor to do a very good work for the Jewish people and begin and watching over uh, the building of a temple. But the point of, of Paul here is that he will desecrate that in due time. So that's what we uh, look forward to and use this as the authority for saying, yes, there will be a future temple in Israel. All right. Uh, verse six, then, John. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, which all power with all power in false signs and wonders. And I will pick up there later because we have already hit the gist of uh, what you want to talk about today in verses six and seven. Yes, so we come to the crucial verses of verses six and seven, and they have caused all kinds of discussion in the church for 2,000 years. And I'm referring to the phrases that say, you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. So we're talking about a what is holding him back, and the Greek text supports that indefinite idea of what. It's a neuter idea. And then the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back. So now Paul goes to a personal pronoun, referring to an individual. So we have both a thing in verse 6 and an individual in verse 7. So who is this? Uh, well, it or what is it? And through the history of the church, this has been debated. A very common understanding today is that it refers to the Holy Spirit. The Greek words for the Holy Spirit are neuter, and so that would fit uh, verse uh, 6. What is holding him back? Uh, and at times the Holy Spirit can be referred to as a person. That is, uh, God the Spirit is a person as well. And so uh, he seems to fit the bill here for uh, identifying this as the Holy Spirit. And I've become uh, acquainted with the fact that uh, this is quite a uh, entrenched view among Christians uh, uh, here in this country and probably throughout the world. Uh, it is seemingly um, quite entrenched in dispensational uh, circles, and I'm basically a dispensationalist of sorts. Uh, but as I studied this and, and realized that there's a complementary passage in the New Testament that helps us identify what Paul is talking about, and that's what Paul writes in Romans 13 about human government. And as I looked at that, I feel, saw that the passage there talks about God instituting government to which we should all submit because he uses government to restrain evil. He talks about the fact that the uh, government is a rewarder of those who do good and a punisher of those who do wrong. He has the sword, signifying uh, being able to exercise the death penalty. And all of this is meant to uh, bring terror to the heart and the soul of lawless people. And so the government had been instituted among uh, earth people, going all the way back to... Uh, the Babel, Tower of Babel and the uh, Table of Nations after the flood, when God separates the peoples into various nations. And I, I view this as God's way to prevent greater anarchy and worldwide 
control, worldwide rebellion, and uh, we could use the contemporary term of globalism. So all the efforts toward globalism work toward a greater uh, potential for evil in the world uh, compared to separate nations that divide up the power to do right or wrong. So it is my conviction, uh, presently at least, that uh, we're talking about human government. And I discovered that this is the majority view that has been, pardon me, been prevalent through the history of the church um, uh, through, through the ages. And so government or law or something like that is what is intended. So the it is government and the he refers to the ruler of the government. And I find this distinction made again in the book of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar is identified both as he, the head of the Babylonian empire. And then on the, Daniel can turn right around and call it an it, that is the Babylonian empire over which Nebuchadnezzar rules. So I find in many ways, uh, government and its power to uh, hold back evil is the fulfiller of this. And what is interesting in the verse is that this uh, restrainer exists uh, by God's order, as it were, uh, and will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way in verse 7. And then the lawless one will be revealed, the man of lawlessness. So two things happen to, coincidentally. Uh, the fall of government, or the collapse of its ability to control evil, and the revealing of the lawless one. It's interesting, as you pause to think about this, that the Antichrist will come forward to demand worldwide control and, and achieve that. At the same time, he's called lawless. In other words, he's against all standard law and order as it has been embraced by uh, countries ordained by God. So uh, verses six and seven then I think are referring to uh, government and then its overthrow. And that would go along with the word rebellion in verse three, the apostasy again. Uh, verse 8, as you just read it, means that this lawless one, and by the way, the word lawless occurs four times in this passage. So I guess we can conclude from this that the Antichrist will be, first of all, an advocate of doing away with uh, law and order as we presently know it, let's say, in this country, and embark upon a new trajectory that will result in him becoming the supreme power in the earth, according to his own standards. Uh, <clears throat> verse 8 gives us a quick summary of what will happen then. It says that the lawless one will be revealed. And then we give a, Paul gives a summary of what's going to happen. The Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. That is all talking about the Battle of Armageddon. And we'll get into a discussion of that someday. That is described for us by Zechariah chapter 14 in the Old Testament and by uh, Revelation 19 in detail. Uh, also, it's hinted at in chapter 16 of the Revelation. So the lawless one will be overthrown suddenly by Jesus Christ's return. The splendor of his coming, magnificent. And Jesus describes this, and Paul is no doubt referring to Jesus' words given in Matthew 24, 30, and 31, that the whole world will recognize Jesus coming in, as he himself uses the term, power and glory. So it's a magnificent end to all history, and a new era will be dawning, such as the world has never yet seen, where universal peace and righteousness will rule when Jesus comes again. 
But the rest of these verses uh, talk about some more things that the Antichrist will do. The lawlessness one will be inspired by Satan. Uh, that will explain why he has such great power and deception. Uh, the words actually at the end of verse 9, three different words are used to describe things that have happened by Jesus' disciples, by Jesus himself, signs and wonders and miracles, displays the, po display the power. Those three terms refer to uh, things that God's people do. Well, he's going to imitate that. And Paul adds that these are lying or deceitful powers and signs and wonders. Uh, why don't you go ahead and finish up through verse uh, 12, John? All right, I'll, I'll, I'll begin. Uh, I'll do 9 through 12 just because uh, it's a long sentence. All right. The coming of the lawlessness, uh, be, excuse me, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Yeah, so it's interesting in these verses that two things are emphasized, the truth and the lie, and believing the truth and believing lies, and synonyms used with these, such as delusion. So three or four times, the lie is put in contrast to the truth. And it's interesting here that God is going to allow people to choose to disobey him, to believe a lie. And this is all serving God's purpose to bring this time of uh, the present world's history to an end. Uh, this, is, this explains why Antichrist will receive universal applause and acceptance, because there's something greater going on here than, on, than we can perceive on the surface or physically. And that is a spiritual dimension. Evil is coming to uh, fruition in ways never before in the history of the world. And people will believe uh, lies and strong delusion, and they don't believe the truth, but they delight in wickedness. All of this is the extremity of evil on a scale that has never been seen before in the history of mankind. But it's not going to go on for long because we've already been told by Paul in verse 8, Jesus, when he comes, is going to put an end to this and crush worldwide rebellion and exalt himself as the true son of God and will then enter into the universal kingdom of righteousness and peace for a thousand years. Uh, we need to probably wrap up this time, John. There's so much here to talk about, but I hope our listeners come away from this with two things. That is that there is a restrainer of the mystery of lawlessness, terminology again that goes back to Daniel. There is something that and someone that restrains that. And secondly, the Antichrist is that person and he's going to uh, exert a degree of evil and uh, lawlessness such as the world has never seen. This is the Antichrist. Comments that you would add, John? Well, you know, it, it's, a, it's a curious uh, mixture, and I think by God's design, we are left with this, with this curious mixture of um, uh, excitement and anticipation uh, for the Lord's return, 
and uh, yet uh, maybe not uh, our own uh, experience of horror, but the suspicion and actually the assurance that what is about to uh, uh, become the experience of the unbelieving world is uh, more horrific than anything that has ever existed in human history. Uh, that, should, that should really give us pause uh, to look forward to his coming and to amplify uh, our outreach to those uh, who are uh, lost and may yet be saved before his coming. Yes, and may I conclude with this application. Today, as you, John, and I are in the midst of a pandemic with its great economic uh, challenges as well, something that the world perhaps has not faced before on this scale, certainly our country hasn't for over 100 years, this ought to be telling us something. It ought to be uh, uh, warning us of the end times that are coming, which are going to be characterized by plagues and war and so forth, great economic distress, famines and earthquakes and so forth. Uh, we are seeing this on an unprecedented scale happening right now. And it ought to warn us as Jesus uh, encourages uh, his disciples to take warning from events that are happening and to discern the meaning of the signs of the times, Matthew 16. Uh, he scolds his uh, listeners. Don't you pay attention to the signs of the times? You can tell the uh, signs of bad weather coming, but aren't you paying attention to what the Bible and history is telling us? Our history, our history and the world's history are telling us at this time. So right here, John, we have great significance for uh, thinking about these things. And it behooves all Christians to sort of reflect on the question, what does all of this mean? such as that we are suffering today from the pandemic and, uh, and other things. Uh, so with that, I think we'll close this episode. We'll go on and talk about uh, perhaps the, uh, the, the great tribulation period next time. Uh, so I say goodbye to you today, John. And a goodbye to you, Jim. All right, till next time. Bye now. <laughs>